right, we are back for the sixth episode of the End of the Number podcast. Today, we're joined by Trent Irwin, sixth-year NFL pro, currently with the Cincinnati Bengals, Stanford legend, high school football legend in California, several state records, uh, former five-star recruit, and uh, accolades galore. So, Trent, thanks for jumping on today. Hey, man, I appreciate you having me, man. Excited to chop it up. That's what it's about. Absolutely. So, you know, currently with Cincinnati, plenty of experience in the NFL. It's been a long, windy path, but I'm sure knowing you that you've probably embraced the the grittiness of it all. When you look back at your high school career, you were a five-star recruit, set state records for the most receiving yards in California state history for high school football and most receptions. We just interviewed your high school quarterback, Brady White, you know, former ASU Sun Devil turned Memphis Tiger, now back with the Sun Devils as a coach. Tell me a little bit about those middle school and high school days when you guys were arguably the most dynamic quarterback receiver duo in California, if not the country, you had to be up there. Man, those days were pure. I always say those were the purest days of football playing in high school. Um, You know, just playing with my dude, B-Rad, Brady, the, seventh and eighth grades when we started and then all through high school. And, um, I mean, that's, that's my dog. That's my dude. That's my best friend. That's my, like, we come back here, we always go golfing. We always talk about life, chop it back up. And, you know, he's, his fam is still up here in Santa Clarita. And that's, that's where I'm at right now with my fam in Santa Clarita. Um, so that's my dude. And we, we had a connection that was real special out there on the field. And, you know, I, I appreciate you with the, Accolade talk, you know, those were those were all me and my dude's work ethic, man. We were just grinding. We would go to every freaking camp you can think of. We went to Rivals. We went to Clarkston. We went to, shoot, I, I there's just a number of different coaches that we ended up trying out, seeing what worked. And, um, you know, it was a result of all that work. So that was my dude. And that was a fun time. So this is something that I mentioned with Brady as well is, I saw you at the Clarkson camps. I saw you at plenty of events as a, you know, middle school or high school or um, doing the camp circuit and the training circuit in Southern California. And it's such a great place to be as a blossoming football recruit because there's mm. so much access in the greater LA area and, and beyond. And you definitely were just a fixture at like every event. <laughs> I'd see if I wasn't there in person, I'd somehow see it on social media that you were there tearing it up. What was it? that motivated you to go to those camps was it to actually was it more for exposure or was it more for raising the bar and getting the challenge of being around other great players uh most of it honestly um started with my dad my dad was taking me all sorts of camps when i was young whether it be more local than you know all-star camps um but then you know it sort of grew to those higher level camps where you get to compete against the best and for me, I think, you know, you want to compete against the best just because that allows you to be better. But for me, it was just learning. It was always out there going to learn. I was out there going to try to improve maybe my connection with Brady or just maybe my abilities to be able to run routes and catch the ball. And, um, you know, it, it really was just a learning thing. It wasn't really as much trying to get myself in front of people as it was to just go compete with the best and learn. And, um, I mean, there there's been – a number of camps have been great and a number of camps that, yeah, well, you know, I didn't really take a whole time from, but, you know, I went to all of them and I, you know, I went yeah. out there, had some fun, 
and I, you know, in the end, you get your reps in. My dad was a big believer of uh, the 10,000 hours, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and we calculated hours when I was young. <laughs> and I think he still sort of keeps them up in his head. I don't know the accuracy of them, but he, he's got me over 10,000 right now. So we <laughs> he calculated the hours, and I heard about them. So we, we got those hours in. Yeah. Well, you know, I saw I saw your work ethic firsthand at Stanford, and you're one of these guys that just like I'm sure it's the same way now, and probably even more so being in the NFL. But you're just one of these guys that's a straight up gym rat. Was it when you were young that you just learned to love the grind and the work, and you know, getting those reps? I, I think it was instilled from a young age. Just, I mean, I always had a ball with me. I like we would go to the airport and I'd have a ball with me. Go to the grocery store, I'd have a ball with me, and I'd toe tap on the little grocery store lines or whatever. You know, it, it was I always had a ball with me. So it was like that matter of catching the ball, work ethic was always ingrained in there. Um, and then you go to school and you're just sort of by yourself in college, and you, you know, I'd go out there and work by myself just because I didn't have a whole lot else going on. I had academics that was always tough, but like in my other free time, which usually was with fam, I would just sort of go out there. And, grind and we had we had some people who wanted to go grind too you know you get end up being surrounded by that type of person makes you want to go work i always uh think actually casey tucker would be interesting because he's bounced around um yeah we would always go in the weight room and the last we'd be in the last weight room slot on like fridays and neither of us wanted to leave before the other so we'd be sitting there doing ladders doing weird freaking drills for the next like hour and a half until the other person left and so that was always our thing. But that, for me, I didn't ever want to be outworked. Um, but it was also being able to have fun within the game of it, too, because it's you can go out there and do a crazy amount of work, but it, you might lose it eventually if it's not some sort of fun in there. Also, just looking back at all the additional work that you can do outside of specific training, there's a seven-on-seven seven circuit, which is huge in Southern California. And, and I think, you know, and the last decade uh, definitely has exploded nationally and was so much fun and, you know, used to be anyway, a fantastic way to get exposure and, and uh, to really go and travel and play against the best players and athletes in the country. Didn't have to be people who lived in your neighborhood or who were in your conference or your league in high school. Like you could go and find them. I'm sure you were a guy who went and found them. Uh, Talk a little bit about the difference between, you know, kind of like your local, league matchups versus going to, and even, you know, seven on seven versus tackle, I understand is a big difference, but going to, whether it was that Badger sport tournament in Vegas, like some of those big showcases, talk a little bit about the step up in talent that you got to face and and some of the guys that you got to get tuned, you know, fine tune your craft with. Yeah, no, I mean, we've, sure, you can go from seven on seven, our team had a bunch of four and five stars which was B2G. And then we go play teams with, we played a team with Joe Mixon. So like we knew him, I think Adarius Pickett was also on his team and they had someone else. They were like supposedly a team with like a hundred offers between three dudes. We played a team in Florida. I think they were Florida fire or something. They had Calvin Ridley. I remember he went over the top of us on a 40 yard touchdown first play of the game. Um, I mean, then and then you go from there to the seven on seven in the opening or the rivals uh, five star challenge, and you know we've played the likes of like Derwin James, who was out there, Roquan Smith was on my team, um, and you can keep naming people, but there, there's a ton of talent that was in that circuit 
whether it be regional or whether it be through those all-star things. But that that was a huge exposure to the talent I still see today. You know, I mean, and people have learned and grown. And some people have fallen off and some people have kept going, you know. Um, but it, it was definitely a huge exposure to all that talent that was out there. And, I, you know, for some places like – shit, I don't want to rag on a state too hard, but let's say Kansas. I don't know how they're <laughs> – normal football i know their freaking football team's good but i don't know how their day-to-day normal football is and they don't get to see that type of talent on a day-to-day basis and if you don't see it but you are the best in your region how are you gonna you know grow because you're the best and you got nothing else to try to be better than if you don't see it you don't know so that's one thing with cali is you always got to see the best you were seeing the four and five stars all the time and through that circuit, you got to see even the best from different regions. So that, that whole circuit was pretty dope because it just it kept you hungry. It kept you not, you know, just complacent, you know. Yeah, it's definitely been a common thread with a lot of the guys I've spoken to. No one who ended up being, you know, making it onto a D1 team, excelling on that team, making it beyond that in some cases. None of those guys were people who were like, I really just love hanging out in my zip code where I'm the dominant player and it's really comfortable. Like they were going out and seeking challenges. Like where is the dude who some sites or some scouts are saying is better than I am? Like I want to go find him. And it's just such a, it's such a common thing among, I guess, just highly competitive people that starts at a young age. 100%, 100%. I mean, they're, you just don't grow anymore if, if that's the man, mindset. If you're just happy, content being where you're at, you don't get to where you could be. So I'm 100% with that. And I think, as you've said, Cali provided that at an elite level where you just got to see the best. Like that was – you could walk out your door and see the best. Like you didn't even have to yeah. go searching too far. Yeah. I mentioned at the beginning, you ended up being a five-star recruit, Army All-American. I mean, truly, you were trying to shake them off, but the accolades are – Pretty, it's a pretty long list you got going. And obviously to get there, you had to be a very well-rounded receiver. Um, I'm sure you played inside, outside. You could run any route in the tree. Who was the player when you were growing up who you at least sought to uh, emulate your game after the most? Who'd you try to mold yeah. your game after the most? I mean, you know, fan-wise, be like a Wes Welker uh, fan in a sense, but I'm not really a five seven receiver you know i'm six two so that it ends up being a little bit of a different craft um but that's where i would look at more of the slot stuff um you know i always liked randy in the sense of you know randy moss was just that guy he was one of my favorite players growing up but again i didn't get to emulate my game off of him he's more of a six four guy so i like to look at the likes of like Devonte adams there um you know Devonte is just craftiness at the line you know, just winning within the deception of it. Also, the Ocho Cinco's Johnson, Chad Johnson, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I like to see myself as an artist within the route, and to be able to, you know, deceive someone with my feet. I would lie with your feet. I think is what Ocho would say. Um, but just to be able to give someone the tell, the thing they're waiting to see. It's to me, it's sort of like fishing. You you set the you set the bait. And you just let them see what they want to see in order to cross them up. It's a basketball move. It's a football move. But that, for me, that's the craft. That's the art of it that I enjoy and that I like to look at in other players. You know, I'm not the 6'4", 4'2 guy. That's not me. And if that was me, then I would have to develop other things, you know. But for me, 
being a you know six two, I would tell my high four four type of guy. I got to be able to be crafty. I got to be able to win with leverages. I got to be able to win with deception, and I got to be able to know where I got to be when I got to be there and be the quarterback's best friend in that sense. So that's been my whole process is finding those type of guys who have, who have done that at an elite level. One thing that I always remember about seeing you at these events, in addition to the hair, the blonde hair, <laughs> fast as white. The blonde hair, white guy, receiver cooking everyone is pretty easy to spot sometimes. <laughs> um, and that was pretty consistently you. But you also never wore gloves. I think that maybe you maybe you transitioned to that out of that when you got to Stanford. Talk about that. What was up with the no glove move? Yeah, so my dad to this day goes with the high sock talk. And he'll be like, he thinks it was a and it, I mean, other people have told him that too. So he think they think it's a brilliant marketing strategy in the sense I always wore a high white sock. So like you could always see that. me, I might have looked like a soccer player. I might and I still do the way wear the high white socks because they also look a little faster. White shoes on white socks, it sort of flashes a little more. But the no gloves was just was really a sense that I like to feel the ball. I mean, I like I've never really had gloves, and you know, you get gloves that allow you to sort of catch better. But for me, it was I, I wanted to feel the ball. I wanted to be able to actually feel it. And you know, at our level at that point, in whatever it was high school, like you're not getting a new pair of gloves every game. So you know, eventually the gloves wear off a little bit, and their tackiness isn't as helpful. And and sometimes the bare hands for me was just better. Um, but you know, at, at this level, when you end up getting a new pair of gloves a game, or you could do it a freaking half if you wanted to. The tagginess is there pretty solid, and it's it's an advantage that I didn't want to let let go by. Um, but I still like to sort of bring out the, the no-glove feel in practice once in a while just because I, I, that's my roots. That's my roots going out there with no gloves and high socks and just running routes and having fun. So Developing as a youth player, where do you think you spent too much time that you wish you, mm. you know, something you maybe were convinced that this is where you need to be? focusing on and what's something that you wish you had done more of initially my thoughts go to I like where I'm at and everything that I've been through has allowed me to be where I'm at it's a little bit of a cop-out um yeah but definitely didn't spend enough time in the weight room didn't spend enough time in the weight room just not upper body strong that has never been my my strength uh and I don't have a foundation with that now how much do I need that as a receiver maybe I could use it but I haven't really needed it to do what I need to do. Um, yeah. But that was never a strength. <laughs> something I did too much of. Not, no, not too much of, but what's something that you just, I guess, got the most out of that you would double down on? If oh, you could have? I think that'd be catching. We, we tried to catch like 400 balls a day. Uh, that was the goal. And even like to this day, even when I'm out there in Cincinnati, I have this little football that I attached to a fence. So Phantom Football is the company. I've actually been talking to them lately, but you attach it to a fence, you throw it, and it comes right back to you. And so you can get your catches in. So I'll get my catches above, catches below, catches one, catches one over the shoulder. Mess around with that one, but that, that one's not as practical. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I get my, I guess, 20 of each. So 20, 40, 60, 80, 20, 40, 60, 80. So 160. 160 catches a day in season till I just go after practice. After we do our films and meetings and whatnot, I go back to my little apartment, hook it up on the fence, and get my 160 catches. So for me, it was, I man, as a receiver, you need to catch the ball. You know, you look at some of the greats, 
You can look at like DeAndre Hopkins film and he's an elite receiver, but sometimes the DB is right there, but he comes down with it. And so like, it doesn't really, in the end of the day, if it's a 20 yard catch, you came down with it through a contested catch or you came down with it because you created that much separation. The results the same, you know? So like end of the day, it's receiver jobs to catch the ball. And however that may be, that's, that's what you got to get done. So for me, it was, I get those catches in just to get my mental, my visual reps, but also to just sort of strengthen whatever muscles are, involved in that activity and just I mean maybe just for me to be okay with me knowing that I did everything I could that week in order to be prepared I think that's another aspect of it I just can let go if I know I'm prepared that definitely reminds me I think it's Trent Dilfer who's always talking about the importance of putting in the lonely hours that's a lonely hours there (laughs) (laughs) I can totally see him saying that (laughs) (laughs) Lonely as heck and cold sometimes. Oh, I bet. Cincy. So before we jump to talking a little bit about Stanford and the college football experience, who was your first offer? My first. Oh, that's a that's an interesting question because my first offer was Colorado, but they, (laughs) I got it on Super Bowl Sunday. I think it was my sophomore year, so going into junior. Yeah, going into junior on Super Bowl Sunday. But later on that year, they came in to tell me that I didn't have an offer. So someone called, the receiver coach called and said I had an offer. I was like, dope, got my first offer to Colorado. And then the area scout comes in town to tell me later on that I don't have an offer. So I think technically my first offer that stuck was Cal. I think so. But then Colorado came back and offered, but at that point it was a little bit tough. Like I was like, you can't offer, take away and offer back and have me excited. Like that's tough. But, you know, I mean, it was, whatever it was, it, it worked out. You know, I, Cal was technically probably my first offer, but it might say Colorado on there too because they offered, take it away and offer. So it's still an offer there. So one thing that I think people like to be let in on in this recruiting yeah. process you mentioned in that case, you've got sometimes you'll receive an offer. A coach just picks up the phone, calls you, says you've got an offer. Another time we'll yeah. come by your school, give you an offer. Another time you'll get an offer at a combine. What were all the different ways that you actually received these offers? Mm. Some of them at school camps were some of them at your high school. Like how did those generally go? Because you ended up stacking 20 something offers. Yeah, that, that first one was through a coach of mine that was a friend that was also a friend with the receiver coach at uh, Colorado second one I think they came and visited Cal was real um passionate and they were wanting me to go there I was with Sonny Dykes when they had the air raid offense and mm-hmm. and um golf was there actually too um but that I think they just came and visited there uh I got many many of them on the phone a lot of them were you know on the phone in the sense of like hey you know you <laughs> they'd sort of lead up to it. It was like a, you knew where the conversation was going, but it was like a yeah. 15 minute conversation to get to the end message. I was like, yeah, I knew where this was going. It didn't have to be all the fluffy stuff, but like, you know, you get on the phone and maybe, Hey, how's it going? How you been? How's the fam? You know, we have a cool program up here. Offense is this. And then in the end, they'd sort of say the line. They'd be like, Oh yeah. And then we also wanted to tell you that, you know, we, we have a, you know, we want you here. We want to offer you you a full scholarship. And so, like, a lot of them were on the phone in that way, um, to where you would get a you would get a 
whether it be like a call, a text from someone to get, I don't know how I got that number all the time. I think it must've been coach. I just get the number from a head coach at, at a heart, but I'm trying to exactly remember because that, that is a good, that is a good 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I think most Mine. of them were through the phone. I must've got the number from our head coach at heart, but yeah. I don't know exactly how I got it. I wasn't on social media then, so. So it came down to Arizona State, yep. where your quarterback, Brady, was heading, and Sanford yep. as your top two. 100%. Two very different programs, two very different schools, two very different offenses. I mean, there's not a whole lot tying those two together, maybe outside of the fact that your quarterback was going there. What ultimately uh, led you to making the decision you did with Sanford? Yeah. Um, for me, my mama was my teacher growing up. So academics were a big, a big sway. And, you know, her being my teacher for like, really was like first grade through seven. So like six years of my life. Um, wow. It was at like a small private school. But we ended up swaying and, you know, between going Stanford and ASU. I mean, that was, <laughs> to this day, like, I remember before making that decision, having to go talk to my dude, Brady, who my best friend there. And I freaking have like a letter in my hand. We go to like a Starbucks. It was like, I, to this day, I, I say it's the toughest breakup of my life because it felt like I was breaking up with my dog and I freaking loved him. I still love him. But like, I mean, I cried. It, it is the toughest breakup to this day, my dude. And I'm like, damn. But it ended up just being a situation that was hard to, you know, let go. Stanford was rolling. Stanford, you know, academically, and you know, it just set me up for the future. Whether it was sports um, or you know any sort of academic or like you know, I just connection wise, it just sets you up. Um, so it it came down for months. It was just those two. I told everyone else that really wasn't ever going to be on the table. I had a Michigan quarterback call me and be like, "Hey, you know." I could get you an offer if you have interest. And I pretty much said, no, I don't got no interest. Like that, that was not the, that was just not in the works. You know, it was, I, it was ASU or it was Stanford. And yeah. um, it came down to just being, you know, all those little variables, but wanted to make the best decision for my, my future, however long I played or, or I didn't, you know, so that's what it came down to. Uh, I ended up liking the coaches a lot too at Stanford and, um, yeah, that's just that's what I chose. That today it's still the toughest breakup, as I said. But me and my dude Brady are still best friends. We had a little bit of road in there where it was like, dang, you know, I don't know how to. This conversation's hard to have now. But <laughs> he, he's my dude. We still go golf all the dang time. Love that family. Love that group. And you know, you got him on the podcast already. So hopefully they'll have some context of who Brady is and what type of dude yeah. he is. That he's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So I don't want to fly through Stanford at all. I mean, you got there, didn't redshirt, which is very rare. Um, won a Rose Bowl your freshman year. I mean, the program was rolling. That was that was really um, pretty much the height of the program over the past yeah. 15 years um, with a lot of success leading up to it. But um, And you were just a total staple on that offense, like just a model of consistency wearing a number two at receiver and playing with a number of quarterbacks. I mean, Kevin Hogan, Keller Crisp, Ryan Burns, KJ Costello, but 
very consistent output from you for sure. Um, before getting into anything specific about Stanford football, what, if you can sum it up, you know, in, in a few words, when you, for example, when an NFL teammate of yours asks, what was going to Stanford and playing at Stanford like? What do you tell them in a nutshell? Because it's not like <laughs> other programs or other college experiences. I mean, to start with, you know, I mean, shoot, my first math class was a repeat math class that I've already done. So I was like, this should be easy. And I got to see working my <laughs> ass off. And I was like, okay, math is not for me. I've already done this class. I should get an A. And I had a freaking tutor through football. Got to see. I was like, all right, math is not for me. So that, that was humbling. Uh, I mean, just the amount of unique people that were good at, I mean, Kaylee Decky would be sitting next to you in freaking class. You're like, she's got like 15 gold medals. And if you look at, I don't even know the event, but you look at like her, it might be like the 800, I, I don't know. But like, she owns the top 15 times all time. And there's like 12 seconds between those times. I've never seen anyone so dominant in an event in the sport. There's no one out there that's that dominant. Like, you talk about being able to compete with the best. I, who is the best at that in that sense? Like, how are you 13 seconds faster than the best? I don't know. <laughs> um, that's beyond me. But, like, that, it was humbling. You've seen those type of people all the time. Like, you know, you got those people in CS. My roommate went to freaking math camp when I went to football camps. So he would always help me with math. And I'd be like, how the heck do you know this? But he's like, well, I went to math camp. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know nothing about math camp. So, I mean, you can go from all that humbling stuff. Then you can get even to, like, full moon on the quad. And that was crazy. Like, that was just the sort of earthy crazy type of Stanford feel where, like, people were just in paint. You know, they went out there. It just, it all paint. I was like, whoa. Yep, wearing paint. <laughs> paint. That does not count as anything, bud. Like, whoa. I'm seeing too much. Like, I didn't know what I was getting into, but it it had a variety of uh, uniqueness that was fun. But, yeah, it definitely was not like other schools. But you know what that. Was, so I'm sure that. I'm sure there were a couple of massive games that, you, that stand out to you during those four years. I would assume that being a freshman playing in the Rose Bowl had to be one of them. But mm. what are some of the prime matchups that really stand out to you, whether that was you know, the team that Stanford was facing that week, or maybe even a, a specific uh, position specific matchup for you where you were like, well, I know I'm matched up most of the game with a, you know, NFL bound DB here. This will be a challenge. I mean, yeah, I, I think you hit on the head with the Rose Bowl. Um, Rose Bowl at the get go, I ended up having a catch in that game, which was cool. My freshman year, you know, just team going to the Rose Bowl, blowing out Iowa there. Um, that was sick. I mean, my whole fam, my dad's from Michigan. So Michigan, a lot of time played in the Rose Bowl. And that was the bowl to be in. That was the best bowl game ever. And so like my dad being there, my whole fam being there, it ended up just being awesome. That was, that was dope. Just a dope overall experience to start off my career there. Um, and then you can go also freshman year. I got to play uh, against SC um, and had a couple of third down catches against one of my guys who was on my B2G team in Iman Marshall, who was also a five-star DB, um, who went to SC. And, you know, we, we played against each other for probably four or five years going into that. And so, like, that little matchup was fun when it, you know, presented itself. Uh, then you go 
I always liked playing Utah because they played a lot of man coverage. You know, they they <laughs> played man and they came after the quarterback and they said, "All right, beat our man coverage." So that that was my favorite, usually my favorite game with Utah, um, just because of that. Like you know, you get man coverage out there, you got to go win. As a receiver, that's what you want. You know, sometimes you get the zone coverage or sometimes you get off and we run the ball more. You know, you're like, all right, well, I'll go block, but that doesn't excite me as much as getting a man-to-man rep against the DB where you have to go in. Uh, so that was those were always one of my favorite games. And then one of my last games in my career was against UCLA where I had 100, I think like 104, 105 yards and a touchdown. Um, and so that was sick. Being back home, that was at UCLA. Being back home, go against UCLA, who offered and sort of offered me, but didn't show a ton of interest. Um, and so they offered, but it was like it was a late offer in the sense of well, you're interested because other people were interested. I was at all their camps growing up, so like it wasn't early interest that had me there. But that was cool to be able to go against them and score a touchdown and win that game. So I think that those were probably the games that stick out to me. Um, but you know, I go down. I mean, those there's a lot of memories that were created there uh, that were dope. How about a specific away stadium that really stands out? Oh, specific away stadium. I would say Notre Dame or Oregon State for some reason. Oregon, know, State. Oregon State always had that chainsaw, which was weird. I don't know. Chainsaw <laughs> noises are just I don't know. They 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 stick with you. Um, or Notre Dame, but they had the incidental. They just had the people in the freaking stands with the whistles. Like they would blow the whistle. I remember, I think Bryce had the ball in that play. Someone had the ball, blew the whistle, and he sort of stopped for a second because he thought, wait a second, they'd blow it dead, and then had to keep going. And so, like, they would have whistles in the stands there, and I mean, they would eventually try to get rid of them. But I mean, that's that throw you off. You hear a whistle, you think the play's dead. So, like, there. I mean, and you know, that atmosphere in general was loud and wild and you know Notre Dame's got a hell of a history so I, I think Notre Dame probably holds that one there but who was the older Stanford player that you learned the most from older Stanford player that I learned the most from. hmm you know I mean in my experience there I liked uh, Ronnie Harris there um guru but older Stanford player I probably learned the most from was probably a guy who was there before me who I ended up seeing in the NFL, uh, Michael Thomas. And, um, you know, he, he, I think he's in year 11 or 12, but he ended up coming to Cincinnati over the last two, three years. And uh, he's, he's my guy for everything. Like I always talk to him about random little pieces of advice. He helps me with finance. He helps me with the mental side of the game and, and this last year, he was actually on practice squad most of the year, but he was just there to be for the players, you know, just to give perspective, just to be able to be there for whatever issues or problems that were going around. And, I mean, he's he's someone I look up to in everything. You know, I love Mike Thomas is dope. He's a unique individual who's been through a lot of different experiences, and he sees the path that things are taking well before I ever did. And he'd be like, oh, okay, this is good because of this. I'd be like, I didn't even think about that. You know, he, he was he was that guy for me. So Mike Thomas, by default, is that just because that's who he was for me. He wasn't at Stanford. I didn't know him at Stanford. But that's that's my guy. So you mentioned Michael Thomas. 
given some advice on a number of things, including the mental side of the game. I want to talk a little bit about that. You mentioned okay. earlier, you're a hardcore guy when it comes to preparation. Like you clearly yeah. want to leave no stone unturned. And the more you prepared for a game, the the more loose you could be, you said, and you know, the less kind of stressed you even have to be. Um, what were some of the times where there was maybe a, whether it was nerves or yeah. in-game anxiety, whatever, and how did you deal with yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I mean, sure. I like, I think it started for me, like, you know, it's been a working a lot and, you know, you toughest thing of me in high school would just be handling some failures, whether it be dropping or whatever, but things went pretty well in high school. Um, in college, they also went pretty well. Uh, it wasn't really until my time in uh, Miami when I got cut that I was like, Oh shoot, I might not play ball ever again. And I've played ball for the last 24, 20 at that point, like since I was five. So whatever years that ends up being, that's all I know, you know? And so like, and to be told that you weren't good enough to play at that level was sort of a, a shock, you know? It's like, dang, like I felt like I did everything I could and everything the way they said to do it in order to be there. Like I would go to meetings early. I would go on the field 30 minutes early. I would do everything I thought I needed or everything everyone had said I needed to do in order to play or be at that level. And then I got cut. And so like, for me, that was the lesson in the sense that I don't really do a lot just based off of someone else's opinion anymore, you know, in the sense of like, I'm not going to do it for them because I would much rather do it for me and have it not work out than do it for them and have it not work out because now I'm trying to be something that's not me and it still doesn't work out. I can live with it not working out if it was for me. I can't live with it not working out if I felt like I did everything I was supposed to because that's what they said to do. So for me, it was that little stubbornness because I saw guys who, you know, got a meal to go on one of the coaches' checks, you know, and I was like, whoa, like there's no way I would do that. That's, that's tough, you know. But there, that guy might start next week. You know, it wasn't right. like the polite move was going to be the guy who started. It was you got the job done or not. And so for me, it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to do all this extra work so the coach notices I'm doing it now. Like, I'm going to do work if I need to do it, but it ain't for you. It's only for me to prepare. You know, it's only for me to be where I want to be. And so that was a little eye-opening for me because I was doing stuff for other people when, in the end of the day, like, if I make the catch, if I make the play, I play. I stay there. If I don't, I get cut. And it's really that simple. You know, you see guys all the time and can't come in and try to be something for someone else. And eventually that, you know, that, that fall falters a little because it's it's not for them anymore. And if they don't get the appropriate response for those – that was my dog. Uh, <laughs> they don't get the appropriate response. <laughs> response for those at like actions then they no longer do those actions you know and they don't know why they're doing those actions so for me i guess long way come around the toughest time was miami in the sense of just being able to learn to do stuff for me based off of what i felt like i needed to learn and to not 
always listen to the coaches, you know, uh, like, you know, coach will tell you what to do and how to do it. And if you do it exactly his way, but it doesn't work out, doesn't matter that way either. If you do it exactly the way you wanted to, but it worked out, you're still there. So in the end of the way, make it work out and everything else doesn't matter. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, you can do, be the person you want to be off the field, but on the field, make it work. And right. if you have your way to make it work and it does work, you're going to be there. And if you don't and you do it their way, you're going to be gone. Make it work, whatever that may be. And, you know, I think I've spent enough hours developing my craft to be able to have answers to problems within the getting open side and catching the ball side of things. And, yeah. you know, for knowing me, I know me better than anyone. So, you know, that's, um, you know, that's been tough. And then you can go into camp, you know, you see guys, you almost see guys get cut like by play. Like you'll see guys break in the sense of like, they're on the verge of getting cut. There's a couple of days left. They want to make a play. And then, you know, something bad happens. A drop that gets picked and you're like, Oh Lord, shoot. That might be, he might be gone now. And then it just tanks from there. And then that's a stressful time because People want to be, you know, they spent their whole life to try to be as good as they can at their craft. So, I mean, you know, I, I remember my time at freaking Miami. I had one where a guy hit me and I caught a ball on like a screen and then fumbled and the guy lay on the floor watching return. I was like, damn, I'm cut. <laughs> and that's a shitty feeling, man. That is a shitty feeling. But, you know, I think there's a lot of growth to be had with it. Um, but I think for me, that was the biggest thing was just doing it for me instead of doing it for anyone else, because man, it sucks doing it for someone else and having it not work out. And if you do everything you can and it doesn't work out, but you had it for you, like you got you, man, that's, that's, a tough, that's something you can deal with. So yeah, I, don't know, I, mean, I don't know how that resonates, how that sits, but that was my, my perspective. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you just talked about getting cut by Miami to just recap post Stanford finish senior year, go undrafted. You said that three teams contacted you about, I guess, potentially signing you as an undrafted free agent, or at least picking you up. Um, and one of those teams was Miami. That's where you went, got cut in the, in the final round of cuts. I think at the end of training camp, we we're talking about before, before the show, but all that people, I think the most that people can possibly get led into an NFL training camp environment is literally about watching hard knocks, which obviously is a uh, show that I think, you know, probably shows some raw stuff, but also there's a bunch of yeah. HBO producers that are trying to find a storyline. And I think you miss a lot of the real deal. Talk yes. a little bit about an NFL training camp because it, I mean, it really is a month long pressure cooker where there are twice as many guys as there are spots you know, when camp begins, all of these guys have been the best. They've all been the Trent Irwins of their town. You know, they've all, they were all the superstar of Pop Werner, the captain of their high school team, got the offers, excelled in college, ended up in the league. And now they're in, not only is like, oh, I don't know if, it's not like, I don't know if I'll work for this company, but I'll go work for another one. It's like, this whole thing is on the line now. This could be the end of 20 years of working. Um, towards this goal. Uh, and, you know, there's also a mix of guys and I, I want to hear your full commentary on it, but there are the guys who show up as 
the rookies, like in your case, uh, in Miami, where you're just grinding to make the team and you're competing against savvy NFL vets who have already had great careers and they're trying to hold on for another contract in another year. Yeah. You know, they're throwing elbows just like everyone else. So just talk a little bit about that. It's, it's such a unique, uh, thing that, you know, happens every August across the league. Yeah, no, it's super unique. And and you get to see how people deal with it in a bunch of different ways. And I mean, at that level, no one's job is really safe unless you're like a pro bowler. And then if you don't perform at that pro bowl level for a couple of years, your job's not safe either because you're getting paid tons of money. And if you don't produce, you don't produce and they don't want to have you there no more. Um, and I always say as an undrafted free agent, I got one of my best buds at um, Cincinnati who's an undrafted free agent. And um, we've been there for five years together now. I always tell him, man, they, they always try and get rid of us. Like, if they could get rid of us, they would be happy. Like, that, they have no investment in us. They always try to find someone to take our spot. But I always tell them, we on year five, boy, and we still fucking here. <laughs> so, like, that's... For me, that's that's always how it is. Like, I'm not over here scared when they draft someone or scared when they – because it's like, you know what? They're always trying to, you yeah. know? And, and in the end of the day, you get to go out there on that field and go compete and go have fun and go make plays. And and sometimes they may go in a different direction. But, you know, in the end of the day, like, that might have a lot of variables. That might be they went in a different direction because they drafted a second rounder that they've invested, you know, millions in. And it's like, okay, you got a second rounder. Like, it's hard to compete with that because they're going to get two to three years of opportunity to prove their worth because someone high up made the decision that we want that guy and they're not going to go, Oh, you wanted that guy, but we're going to cut him because he's not that they're going to give him a chance. You know, there's certain guys that you don't have a ton of pull against. It's like, okay, that guy's going to get a shot. That guy's going to get a chance. He's going to get his opportunity. He's going to get his targets. And there's certain political moves that you have no control over. But, like, in the end of the day, for me, I feel like my job is to know everything. My job is to know the F, the Z, the X, shoot, the Y I play in 10 personnel, the H I'll play in 01. So, like, my job is to know everything. And I, if someone gets hurt, I can play that spot. My job is to know everything on special teams. You know, I'll go sit down with the special team coach and be like, hey, all right, I got to learn this. How do we, How does this guy do that? And sometimes that's on kick return, and that sucks. I don't know if people understand how bad it is to be a guy on kick return as a receiver and probably other positions. But you turn around, and you got a 240-pound linebacker with 40 yards of head start running right at you, and it's like physics doesn't really work out this way. Like, it's not going to be a great result. You just got to make it so he doesn't make the tackle. You got to be grinding within that. Um, And then it's just – I think it's – I think it's the mental side of the game that you develop through the years that ends up being the biggest thing because it's it's the play after drop. It's the, you know, like DBs always, they like clapping. You know how people, ah, clapping is like a fine in our in the DB room. And, like, so they don't ever want to see that. So, like, ah, oh, Andy clapped. He got beat and he clapped. So, like, Andy's down on himself after it. He didn't just get beat. Now he's in the head. Now his head's in the tank, you know. So, like, those type of things in the sense of just being able to handle those losses. Cause at the end of the day, the guy across from me gets paid millions to do his job and he's a dang good player. Now 
did he do his job at elite level and stop me sometimes? Or did I not do something at the level at which I could play to create separation? And if that's the case, I got to change. I got to be able to adapt. If it's the other case, good play, bud. Good play. Like you get paid millions to do your job too. I get that. We gonna, I'm going to come right after your ass next play though. We coming. And that's, that's never going to change. So like, I think people have their own journey to be able to discover the the mental place that allows them to compete at the best level. And and I've learned for me through a lot of other players, uh, one of the players who I think is elite mentally and able to do stuff that, you know, some might not think he's able to is uh, Tyler Boyd, actually, TB. And I came in and I remember John Ross, they were all talking about racing. And, you know, John Ross is fast as heck. And TB was talking shit about beating him in a race. I was like, bro, you got no shot. But, like, he didn't believe that. He believed you lined it up and it was a 20-yard dash. You might have got him. And I was like, dude, that's not going to be close. But, like, that's his mentality with everything. Like, you compete with – he just wants to compete. He'll compete in ping pong at an elite level. He'll compete in – we throw a little water bottle game before practice sometimes just for fun. He just wants to compete. And he's a competitor in everything he does. And just sort of seeing his mindset and how he – like. Even like when like some something bad happens, he'll fumble the ball. He honestly has about three or four comments, but one of them's like, it'll come. And like he said that probably five, ten times before it sort of stuck with me. And I'm like, dang, like that's not sitting here going like, yeah, I know I sucked on that play. Or yeah, I know that, you know, I let the team down. No, it'll come. Like that's like saying, okay, I acknowledge it happened. We ain't going to change the past because no one ever has. It'll come like that's going to come and change around because that's just not how who I am. That's just not what it is. You know, that's just give it some time. It'll come, you know, and I think that whole mindset that he had has sort of leaked into me in the sense of like something that I just take with me. And I think if you're willing to be able to see all those examples, um, there's a lot of growth to be had on that side of the game that people don't always get to see because it's, you know, it's usually between the ears. Between the ears doesn't always get told. Dude, you're like the easiest guy in the world to root for. I'm sure your teammates are huge fans of yours. But, um, you know, you talked about being just staying ready and being flexible and playing X, Z, Y, H. I mean, like, this is a guy who's just finding a way to contribute, find a way to add value, be ready, stay ready. Another thing, and you mentioned the, the terrifying and kind of brutal position of being a receiver on kick return, having to lay a block on a linebacker with a 40-yard head start on you. But another thing that you've done many times in the NFL is what I think is among the scariest things in all of professional sports, which is being an NFL punt returner. Can you talk yeah. to people about what in the world is going through your head when you jog out onto the field, ready to catch a ball that's falling, you know, 150 feet out of the sky uh, with 11 dudes sprinting at you? Yeah. Um, shoot. I mean, for number one job is to come up with the ball. Somehow, yeah. some way, you got to have that ball in your hands. I always say number one hand, job is to hand that ball to the ref after the play. Um, and you see punt returns get cut left and right for when that doesn't happen. Yeah. But – for me, a punt return 
is so much less of a plan than it is a field. Because if you don't have, shoot, you catch the ball, A, you got to decide if you're going to catch it or fair catch it, and you got to live with that decision. B, usually when you catch it, you don't have time to go, oh, okay, it's cover two, I'm going to run it this way. No, like, you got to react. You got to make a decision and slash and go. And you can maybe for a hair set it up, but, like, for most instances, you got to catch and go. And it's all instinct. It's all, like, sometimes you don't even get to see color that well. You know, you're sitting there, wait, that guy's not on my team. You know, like, it's not like, okay, there's the right tackle. There's the, okay. No, it's like, it's all a feel. It's all a feel. It's all flowing within the moment. There's not a lot of thought. And, I mean, the thing, too, punters, punters can put some crazy punts up there, too. Like, they'll put some stuff that has some sauce on it. Like, they have some intentional punts that, like, One's a helicopter that goes a little bit different. Sometimes they put like the little banana that's a little bit sideways. Some of them are lefty or righty. That changes. Some of them can throw a knuckleball up there, which that one's always, that one's just reacting that we're going to go. You know, like knuckleball, they'll do that in the plus 50. And that that just sort of floats. And it just sort of shakes. And you got to react last minute. And it really has no pattern to it. So mm-hmm. like that one's probably one of the toughest ones. But Punts definitely have a lot of variables, and it's a lot of instinct. It's it's not as much planning, in my opinion. It's a it's a lot of instinct to be able to just react within that moment and uh, make the best decision and live with it. You know, I mean, that, I think that's life in general. You made the best decision with the information you have, and you live with it. You know, yeah. you can't change the past at all. So, you, shoot, that's the decision I had with the information I had. Turns out now I know more. It wasn't a great one, but we're going to live with it and we're going to learn. Yeah. That's a pretty logical way to look at something as high stakes as that, but I respect it. <laughs> so leaving Miami, you know, there's the crazy feeling of all of a sudden you've been cut after being only the best for your whole life. How long was it before Cincinnati came calling? And yeah. what was that in-between period like? What did you do? Yeah. No, I was I was here um, in Cali for four weeks. So it wasn't still until week five of the NFL season. So I was at home. And I was training. We actually ended up being one of my trainers for the next three years. Um, I was training there. But... I didn't really know if I ever got a shot. Like, I didn't know if I got a shot again. You know, you didn't know when it was coming. I got a tryout type of thing at um, New York. We did like a tryout, ran around. They did the blood tests and physical and all that, but then they just shipped me back to Cali. Um, and then it came up in week five. I was actually in the middle of a workout or just about to start a workout, and my agent called. And so I got on a plane that day, um, went to Cincinnati, had a workout the next day with three receivers. I ended up knowing two of them or one of them, um, but it was me and two others. And, uh, you know, they we went in the locker room and after the workout, I got a text that said I was still there. They were all asking about when the text was going to come. I, I didn't know how to you know, break it there. I was like, shoot, I got, I got a text. I don't want to be like, Hey, hey I got a text, but it was what it was. I did the workout at about 12. We practiced at like one. So like I 
did the workout. They showed me a locker. I got a locker, got dressed, and ran out to practice. And I had practice that day. And I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anything. But I was back playing ball, so I was psyched. Um, and so I think it was. I think it was good for me to have those four or five weeks at home where I wasn't able to play anymore. You know, I think that was good for me just to know, just to know I still wanted to play and still was something I had to prove. Um, and so that was. That was that was part of the journey, and you know I've been in Cincy since, and I, lo- I love love the organization there, love the people. But what was going through your head during that time where you're kind of balancing like you want to stay ready, you got to do yeah. everything in your power to be ready in the event that the phone does ring, but there's also complete uncertainty on whether or not that yeah. phone will ever ring. How do you- I felt like I can achieve something, and it didn't happen, you know. So like for me, that's a loss. That's something that just sits with you and it sort of sits with how your belief in yourself, you know? So there was a lot of, a lot of thinking, um, just on my own, just trying to feel what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do that. And, you know, it wasn't fun. You know, I was just sitting with my people though. So I at least got to be with my people there, but it was sort of like, dang, is it, is the dream over? You know? So I, it was a realization um, that something needed to change because whatever I was doing didn't exactly work, you know? So for me, that change was not doing everything by the book because someone told me to, because that's, that's not something I can go with if it doesn't work out. So I, I just had to find a way to win yeah. as a receiver and as a player, figure out what worked for me and be able to live with those decisions within that moment. It was, it was tough though. It was tough for that whole four or five weeks. Um, I was I was walking my friend's dog for a little bit of money. <laughs> I was just chilling out here, and I didn't know if it was over. And um, I didn't have the plans. I didn't know what the heck it was going to come. I I've never worked a day in my life, so I don't even know what type of jobs I would get into. I did know I went to Stanford to have some options, but I didn't know what those options entailed, and and I never got far enough to really explore those yet. So. And I'm, I'm thankful for that, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was a dark time. It was a dark time. You then end up in Cincy and you end up on the practice squad for two years, which to me is crazy that no other team claimed you or wanted to pick you off that practice squad for two seasons. That It really doesn't make sense to me. But talk a little bit about that time and just putting in that work with no game day at the end of the week and how that ultimately transitioned into being pulled up to the active roster. Yeah, um, so I had those two years uh, that one of my guys uh, was the guy I was talking about earlier about they're always, we've been here undrafted free agent five years, always trying to find someone to get rid, to replace us with. That was one of my guys was Stanley Morgan. And uh, we always said Thursday was our game day because Thursday practice, we got to do third down reps against the number one defense. And so Thursday was our game day because we didn't suit up for the game. So we went out there Thursdays against our defense. Usually third down is a lot of man-to-man type coverages. And uh, that's when we got to go show what we can do, you know. And and so that kept us hungry. Um, Kept trying to learn the playbook, trying to learn whatever other positions uh, I could master. But for me, it was just staying hungry in those times to try to go get more, go for more, you know. And I think – 
um, you know, two years there, he ended up still getting paid, but it was not the goal, you know, and, and um, it was grimy though. We went out there and we just, Thursdays was our game day and we wanted to go in. Whatever that happened, you know, we wanted to go make a play. And I actually even had a thing. <laughs> I don't think Mama knew about it. I don't know if we actually got to that point. But me and him were making a deal with, uh, we would say that every catch we could have had, we had to go give Mama $20. So, like, if we had a catch where it was like, okay, I could have had that catch, but I didn't come down with it on Thursday, I got to go pay Mama $20 because that can't happen. Like, every, I've got to come down with every catch. And, you know, mama benefits off that, but uh, that was like the mindset. I don't know if we ever collected in on it. I got looking at mama right now and yeah, I don't know, but, (laughs) but that was the mindset we had there. When you finally did get activated, what were some of those first moments like Were your nerves spiked? Was it, uh, just feel like just a massive moment or was it like, okay, this is back to the plan. Like this is where I was supposed to be from the, from the get go. I would say. I mean, the nerves were even big in practice early on. I was like, shoot, I'm over here with Andy Dalton. And I'm like, I remember watching him when I was young. And I'm over here with AJ Green. And, you know, you're like, I watched these guys when I was young. Like, you know, the nerves even in practice were high. I didn't want to mess up. Um, And, you know, that that mindset is not super conducive to being productive. Um, And, you know, it took time to sort of feel out my own identity as a player, as a person. but, you know, that nerves were high as heck. You know, I had my first catch my second year. It was my second game playing. It was just five yard out. That was my fun catch. Um, <laughs> I was hyped. I had it on my freaking Instagram. I had it reposted. First catch of my NFL career. Um, so that was dope. But, you know, I mean, it hasn't been like a, you know, a smooth or even a rough upward climb. Like, it's been times when, you know, I made the 53-man roster, and then I got cut. You know, there's been plenty of times where, like, like even three three years ago, I made the 53. They called me, and then I didn't. They didn't clear waivers, and they picked up someone else through waivers, and then I got put back down the practice squad. So I was on the 53-man roster, made the cut, and then I got put down the practice squad because they needed to fill up another spot with someone who was sort of hurt. So like then I was like, dang, I made it, but then I'm back. And even the next year, I one, I may have played most of that or been active most of that year. The year after that, I tore my labrum in my shoulder, and then I didn't really get to play a ton of preseason. I played some in the end, didn't get to play in camp, and I got cut. And then honestly, they told me they weren't going to bring me back on practice squad. But another team picked up one of our receivers they wanted to bring on practice squad. And so then they brought me back on practice squad. And then that ended up being one of my most productive years after the first seven weeks. So like, it's been still a roller coaster of like, you're on the team, you made the 53, you're on practice squad. And, you know, I'm, I've always stated that I'm fighting for every opportunity I get. And uh, it keeps, it keeps me hungry in that sense. So one thing that has to help when you're up on the active roster is having a quarterback like Joe Burrow. Can you give people just the, the flyover of what it's like to play with a quarterback of that caliber? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. He, shoot, he's, he's a year younger than me. Um, a lot of things to learn from the way he does, approaches the game. Um, you know, I mean, 
obviously you get to see his play on the field uh, day in and day out. Um, and he is elite. He's a, he's a guy that, you know, I don't want to say rise to the occasion, but he's always ready for the occasion. He's always, you know, prepared to go out there and perform. And he just, he takes football, I think, more seriously than anyone would think anyone does. Like, we, he goes out there and, you know, he he knows the playbook better than anyone. He knows what the defenses are doing better than anyone. He studies more than anyone there. He's always in the facility. You always see his car there. And, I mean, he just knows everything. He knows where it's supposed to be, when it's supposed to be there. And he's got his own creativity within it to be able to tell you, hey, run it this way or feel it that way. Or, like, what do you think about this? And I, he'll be like, okay, just bend it this at 10 yards at 12 or whatever. He's always got his little nuances and details on how he wants things done or how he sees things. Um, but I, I just think that's through the work ethic. Like, I don't think anyone outworks him. Like, he goes out there and he studies the playbook like all week i don't think there was some article about it um and i don't know for sure exactly how but he he doesn't really like mingle a ton all week like all week he's planning for that next game day like it's like how are we going to win that next week and he goes in there on the off day studies freaking whatever that new team is new defense the coordinator his tendencies coach give him all the ins and outs but He's had enough experience now that he also has say in certain things. So, like, he'll be like, you know, oh, we want this this week, you know, a little more 10 person runs, a little more 11, a little more this type of route. I, he gets to have some say in that too. Um, and I think that comes with his level of preparation and play that he just sort of has a high standard and what he wants to be able to attack the defense with, you know. Um, but, I mean, you know, I think, you think you see it in the way he just goes about most of his life. He he's, takes football, I think, more seriously than probably anyone on our team. And not seriously in the sense that he won't have fun, but in yeah. the sense that he's in there studying all day, learning about the whole defensive coordinator, the whole defensive system, learning what plays and what formations. And I don't even know how they memorize half our plays. Like They, they say a play in the headset. I don't know how you know every little – offensive protection and I don't all I know is the route and the formation I don't know anything about the protection I don't know anything about the miking who whatever that's yeah. beyond me but he knows everything and he doesn't miss anything like it's not usually if you rerun a play in practice it's not on him it's on someone else one of the other 11 you know and then that is just the standard and usually he'll know where and why what went down it's, he's, I think it's just a matter of preparation um, and a matter of I told him I think he's the most creative thrower of the ball in the game in the sense of like being able to throw a corner route as a back shoulder ball or being able to – he had a ball versus uh, San Francisco, I think it was three, four years ago, where he was rolling right. Jamar was in the back of the end zone running left, but he could sort of tell Jamar was going to stop and run back the other way, and he threw it. Before Jamar really stopped, but timed it up so that Jamar could be running here, stop, and come back and catch it in stride. And I was like, how do you even see that? Like that, I wouldn't have known he was going to stop, first of all. But how do you time up the stop with the ball location on a non-planned scramble drill route? Like I was like, that don't even make sense. Like, I don't know. But I, that's that's where I go with his creativity of, of passing the ball and just putting it in spots that like, 
I go, dang, that was a spot that was open, but I didn't think it was coming there, you know? Wow. But he's he's elite for for his all his reasons and you know, I mean he'll be elite for a while. So impressive. All right, we're gonna wrap it up with some just a quick handful of uh rapid fire questions. Give me just something quick cool. off the top of your head for these and we'll we'll take it home. Okay. Sweet. Who's the best athlete on the team? Hmm. I'm gonna go with Orlando Brown. He's our freaking left tackle, but people that big should not move that well. He's six eight three forty and he moves well. Yeah, you know, we're going with Orlando Brown. Best I mean, how does a six eight, three hundred and forty pound guy move that well? I don't know. Oh, he's gonna love that. You better share a clip with him. Who's the <laughs> best re- <laughs> who's the best receiver in the league? Oh, best wide out in the league. We're going to go with Devontae, Devontae Adams. I know Tyreek might be out there, but Devontae, I like Devontae's craft. Who is the best DB in the league? Mm. I like Sertain on film, Patrick Sertain. So I would, I would say probably him. What is your favorite route? Favorite route? Mm. I mean, I could, I love double routes for sure, but I think everything stems off of go. So the ability to win on a go route whether that be off the line, whether that be within the stem, within the route. Um, I, that's that's where everything stems off of. So I got to find a way, whatever that may be, to win on a go route. So for me, I would just say a go because that's where it all starts. What's been your favorite NFL TD that you've scored? Uh, I was in my first one in um, at the Steelers. It was a go-ahead touchdown. Uh, I had a touchdown sort of robbed from me the previous week. Um, so that, that one was, I mean, it was like a one-yard touchdown, but it was a go-ahead touchdown on third down. And so that's probably my favorite there. Describe Cincinnati fans in a nutshell. <laughs> ah, um, they love their chili. Um, so I'm not going to say nothing crazy about it. They definitely are drunk at a lot of the games, but they love, I mean, shoot. Uh, they freaking, they had a game this year where they, they called the stripe out. They striped the stadium. And so like they had certain sections where they just, it was like sent out on like, like Instagram or something. Hey, if you're in this section, we're black. If you're in that section, we're orange. Yeah. And it worked. Like everyone was wearing the right colors in the right section. They didn't put a freaking shirt on the, you know, the seats. They were just all in sync. I, yeah, they love Cincinnati. They're there. They're supporting. They're always locked in. They're not, you know, fair weather. They they're there. They're supporting. You know, they're they're diehards. I, I don't I I don't quite understand all that. With you know, Cali hasn't been that way as much, um, but Cincinnati fans are diehard. I got their their Bengals, and they love them, and we love them. Last one. What element of the game had the biggest change or step up from college to pro? I would just say like studying it like almost like a class or studying it like an obsession. Like, you know, I, I honestly, I like before our last day, uh, like, so we go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, um, Thursday, no, it's Friday. Friday we do, um, like a quiz. So Thursday night I'm studying everything, everything there is to study. I'm drawing up, plays i'm drawing up formations which ones we plays we run out of those formations this week and so that the coach 
or the quarterback in the huddle can say the formation and I can almost guess the play based off the formation. So like I take it down to just every formation, every play we have, every third and three to five, third and six to nine, third and one to three. I'll put three or four plays that we have. We might have five or six from each one, but I'll put it in there. So I memorize all that. And so that when I get in the huddle, once they start saying it, I can almost finish it. So for me, that, that next step was just studying it religiously in the sense that I knew all the plays from every position and how we're running it that week. Okay. I got to throw in one more bonus question. What you got? I know that you're, I know you're a big fisherman. I know that fishing is like <laughs> your favorite thing. I already knew that. And then in preparing for our conversation, I saw that one of the more recent podcasts you were on, you were literally on a fishing pot. You were on like the, the bass. <laughs> it was called like the, the bass masters pod or something just like, you got to be a hardcore fishing guy to be going on a pot on a bass pod for a full hour. <laughs> what is the best? What is the best? What's the best fish you've ever caught? And where were you? Uh, best fish I ever caught. And where was I? I caught an eight pound bass up in Castaic, which is like 15 minutes north of me. That used, that's our spot. They have some monsters in there. The record bass is like 20 pounds and it's caught up there. So we go there to try to catch the monsters. I have yet to catch a double digit, but double digit bass is sort of like, that's that's the measurement, like that's elite. It was, ours was eight and we were sight. And um, you know, I've caught some ocean fish. I caught, I caught a striper that was not in the ocean. I got some mahi-mahi and some other stuff. I still want to get a tarpon. I still want some other fish. And I have some trips planned coming up. Um, but I, I was proud of that eight-pound bass because that was, that was me and my little bro and no one else, no guide. We figured it out. We got it to hit. We were psyched. The Tackle so. Talk pod. I found the real name. It wasn't Bass Talk. <laughs> talk. It said, come on. I said, all right, I'm there. I just hope I can keep up, man, because I ain't really that. I love it, but not like they do. They must have thought you are I'm subject matter expert. All right, Trent, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. That was so fun. I really yeah. appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck. You, I'll be reading, rooting for you. I'll be tracking you. Um, I think that Anyone who listens to this who didn't know who you were prior, well, you're, you're stocking fans out there. So thanks so much. Appreciate you, bro. Good to chat. Good to catch up. It's been a minute. Hope Dallas keeps going well. We got to catch up more. Absolutely. Thanks, dude. All right, bro. I think you'll understand. Oh, we're on a podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. This is what happens when you're recording the live. Dad. I might oh, have to leave him in. I don't know if I want to edit that. <laughs> but yeah.